A college professor was explaining a particularly complicated concept to his class when a pre-med student interrupted him. Why do we have to learn this stuff? One young, young man blurted out. To save lives, the professor responded. A few minutes later, the student spoke up again. So how does physics save lives? The professor stared at the student for a long time without saying a word, and finally the professor continued, Physics saves lives because it keeps certain people out of medical school. Well, we just finished our study of Zechariah, and the subject of the second coming of Christ is certainly not new material for us. The Old Testament spoke, uh, prophets spoke repeatedly about the second coming, and the New Testament is filled with verses on this subject. Last week we saw the threat of false teachers and the error that they proclaim. And Peter protects these believers from their error by enlightening them with the knowledge of the truth. And as we look at chapter 3, it's apparent that one of the doctrines that was under attack by the false teachers is the return of Christ. They not only denied this truth, but they scoffed at it and they ridiculed it as well. People scoffed back during the time of Peter, and the same is certainly true today. We see from this chapter that we have complete assurance that Jesus will return. So we begin chapter 3 with the hope of Christ's return. In the first four verses, we are told to remember the word of God. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter explains why it was necessary for him to write two letters to them. He wanted to refresh their memories about the truth they already knew. Specifically, the truth is related to the second coming of Christ. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. First, he tells believers to remember what the Old Testament prophets wrote about the Messiah's coming. They made no distinctions between his first and second comings. We have seen in our previous study a prophecy about his birth and prophecy about his life, his death, as well as the second coming and his judgment. The book of Jude reminds us that it was only seven generations after Adam that Enoch gave a prophecy about the Lord coming to earth to judge the ungodly. The reason that people throughout human history deny the return of Christ is because they want to dismiss from their minds the idea that they will be judged for their sins. If Jesus doesn't come to judge, then they can live as they choose without fear of consequences. This is why Peter exhorts us to remember what the prophets predicted about the coming judgment. In addition, Peter says they should remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The only way to assure ourselves that Christ is coming again is to remember not only what the Old Testament predicts about his coming, but also to remember that Jesus and the apostles spoke of the rise of false teachers who would distort truth about his coming, as seen in Matthew 7 and Acts 20. This is why Peter makes a statement in verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Peter wants all believers to understand that in the time period that we are living, known as the last days, there will be many who mock the return of Christ. There are countless seminary professors at liberal seminaries who deny the authority of Scripture, and they deny the return of Christ. They are mockers, and they've infiltrated Christendom. 
there are many who have a deep contempt towards Christ and the gospel and take delight in making fun of the thought of Christ returning. How many in higher learning settings look down on those who believe in a miraculous return of Christ coming from heaven, bringing judgment to the world? And why do they mock? Because they follow after their own lusts. Such individuals may stand behind their podiums declaring that they speak out of their great intellectual understanding, but it is just a cover-up for their own sins. They pursue their illicit pleasures and deny that there will ever be consequences. Does this not describe our culture? If you choose a lifestyle contrary to the standards of Scripture, then you must either change your lifestyle or change the Word of God. Mockers choose to deny or change the Word of God, declaring that there is no return of Christ in which He will judge sin. It has nothing to do with their intellectual arguments, but everything to do with a godless lifestyle. Therefore, they mock and ridicule the gospel and those that believe it. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Some may believe there is a God who set this world in motion and then let it just go on its own course. They believe God has never brought about catastrophic judgment in the past, therefore it's not going to happen in the future. But this is a failure to recognize the work of God as seen in verses 5-7. through seven. In making this claim, such individuals choose to deliberately ignore two events in history. They deny creation and the flood. As a side note, this is why the ministry of creation groups like Answers in Genesis have built the ark in like manner of the original and have made a creation museum they have intelligent scientists and scientific information revealing the folly of those who mock the truth of both of these important facts in history they are a shining light in a very dark culture that denies a literal creation or flood so I encourage you to make it a priority in your life to visit both of these sites near the Cincinnati area believe me that area and that ministry when they set it up there was mocked by the community and the people there continue to be shocked that countless thousands go there every day. The rejection of these two events is a deliberate choice to ignore what the Bible says about the past. They refuse to look at what the Bible says to explain history. In the minds of so many they think they have to observe a fact in a scientific lab for something to be true and yet the evolution uh, arguments have no real scientific data to be given proof. And Peter makes it clear that having an accurate view of history reveals the truth that God did intervene in his world and he did change the normal course of things. At creation, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Based on Genesis 1, Peter believed that God spoke the world into existence. The universe was instantaneously created by God in six literal days that he created it to be. This same God who created the world by his word can and will intervene in the world by bringing judgment at the return of Christ. The scoffers fail to recognize the power of God. Just because it seems like everything continues as it always has been doesn't mean that it's true. Peter specifically tells us that the earth was formed out of water and by water. 
Genesis 1 describes how God formed the dry ground and then separated the waters that originally covered the earth, separating waters above the earth and then forming the oceans and the rivers and the lakes. Peter specifically points this aspect out of creation because that is what God was going to use, uh, the same waters from above the earth and beneath the surface of the earth to break into history and to destroy the world through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter refers to a worldwide flood in the days of Noah. In Genesis 7:11, we see that this catastrophic flood wasn't just due to a lot of rainfall, but the subterranean oceans burst open and spilled on the earth, as well as a mass of water above the earth, which many scientists believe there was like a canopy of water above the earth, and that's how the earth was uh, originally watered. It was mist uh, throughout that time period, but then that whole water above the earth collapsed, causing continuous rain for 40 days and nights. The water that had been separated during creation now all was brought together and it destroyed everyone on the planet except Noah and his family and those in the ark. God did this in order to judge the inhabitants of an incredibly violent and wicked world. The people in Noah's day mocked him as he spoke about coming judgment of the flood. They likely said, there's never been any such thing as that before. They laughed at him for 120 years as he tackled the building project of the ark. But they were, they were wrong. They were dead wrong. So are those who mocked the second coming of Christ. Jesus compared these two judgments in Matthew 24 saying that those who died in that flood did not expect it. Peter has clearly refuted that those who mock the coming judgment of sinners are wrong. We need to take heart and never feel intimidated by those who mock what we believe. They deliberately choose to ignore biblical evidence, mocking those who believe in the creation account and the flood, so that they can feel safe in the lifestyle that they've chosen. This passage assures our hearts that Christ will return. We need only to look at his works in the past. We don't have to have been there to believe that it's true because we walk by faith. And what about the future? Verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You know, every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded of the promise of God that he will never destroy the world by a flood again. However, we see that God will destroy the earth in a future judgment by using fire. And what is Peter talking about here? In verse 10, we read about the day of the Lord, which is not one specific day, but rather a time period in which God is going to deal directly with mankind. Events that will happen in this time period, known as the Day of the Lord, include the seven-year tribulation, the return of Christ, the thousand-year millennial kingdom age, the great white throne judgment, where all believers will stand before Jesus for their final judgment. It is following that judgment that God will destroy or purge the heavens and the earth with fire. Revelation 20, 11 through 21, 2 tells us that someday every person who has ever rebelled or denied or mocked Jesus will see him face to face and they will be judged for their sins. There will be no place to hide or to escape. 
God is going to destroy the present heavens and earth with fire and replace it with a new heaven and a new earth. And those who have never trusted Christ will be banished to the lake of fire forever to bear the punishment of their own sins. And once this judgment takes place, that is when there will be a new heavens and new earth. So as Peter has answered the arguments of scoffers, there is still a question that believers may be thinking. If Jesus is really coming, then why hasn't he yet returned? It had been only 35 years since Jesus had gone back up to heaven when this letter was written, and he still had not yet returned. The early believers truly believed that his return could happen at every, any moment, and they lived in light of that truth. Now here we are, thousands of years removed, and we still await his return. Some have stopped waiting or thinking about his return because of all these years that have passed. Now there are modern-day mockers who think Christians cling to a false hope if they still wait for his return. But Peter goes on to explain. He gives two truths about God that explain to us why Christ has not yet returned. First of all, God's view of time is different than our view of time. In verse 8 we read, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Peter does not want believers to be ignorant about this important concept regarding time. God is eternal, and he created time. He has neither a beginning nor an ending. God exists apart from time, and he sees everything against the backdrop of all of eternity. We know from Galatians 4.4 that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. So God does have a plan, and he does work in time and in history. He is always on time, but we cannot confine him to our time schedules. To say that the second coming of Christ is taking too long to happen is completely wrong. To God, a thousand years are but one. We are limited by time, and so we think two thousand years is a really long wait. But to the eternal God, two thousand years is like a brief moment in eternity. This same truth really applies to our lives as well as he is fulfilling his purposes for us and in us. He has precise timing for all the things that he brings into our lives. We struggle with this because we are impatient and we lack wisdom, but he knows what is best for us and he will act in his own perfect time. The birth of Christ came at the perfect time and so did his death. And the same is true that his return will be in his perfect timing. He isn't late, he's not delaying, and he's not slow. Not only is God's view of time different than ours, but we read that God's patience causes him to wait uh, to return. In verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is not slow. How many complain about all the evil that's in this world that could have been prevented if only he had come back by now? But the truth is that God is patient and long-suffering. And the reason he has not returned yet is because he is waiting for people to repent before it is too late. He is holding back his wrath toward rebellious sinners because he desires 
people to be saved. This verse has confused many because it says God's not willing that any should perish. And yet it is clear that God is willing that some people will perish. We saw this in our study last week regarding the false teachers. Notice that God is directing his patience, though, in this verse toward a specific people. Peter writes, but God is patient toward you. He is speaking to the Lord's people. In other words, God is being patient towards his people because he is not willing that any of the Lord's people perish. Those who are the elect who have been chosen by God to be saved will not perish. God is withholding his wrath and he's being patient for all those who he has chosen to come to repentance and be saved. Every one of us is born into this world rebellious sinners deserving God's wrath and judgment. Had Christ returned 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, it would have been before he worked in the hearts of many of us and brought us to a place of salvation. But the Lord continues to be patient so that each one whom he has chosen will eventually see their need for Christ to save them. But someday, after all the elect of this age have finally come to faith in Christ, the stage is set for his return. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its work will be burned up. The day of the Lord is a time when God, as I said before, will directly intervene in human history with judgment on the earth. It will begin with a series of judgments during the tribulation. We read in Revelation 6 and following the great day of the wrath of God. And at the end of that seven years, as we just studied in Zechariah, Jesus will return and he will deliver the remnant that has not been put to death of Israel and he will judge her enemies and all those who had rebelled against him. This judgment is referred to as the day of the Lord. Jesus will set up his kingdom then on earth, but at the end of the thousand year reign on earth, God will again deal in judgment as all will appear before him at the great white throne judgment. And he will destroy, at that point, the physical universe. This is the aspect of the day of the Lord in verse 10. It will come like a thief. It will be sudden and it will be disastrous for those who are unprepared. Peter is clarifying for us what he brought up earlier. The world was destroyed once by water in the past, but in the future it will be destroyed by fire. The physical universe will disappear with a roar, meaning a hissing or a crackling sound like the roaring of a fire. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Everything is going to burn up, even the most basic elements in the world. Not only will the earth burn up, but so will all the achievements of mankind. All the amazing buildings, the amazing technology, the inventions, the art masterpieces, all will be burned up in a moment of time. Everything that mankind boasts about is going to be gone, laid bare, and exposed for what value it really is. The heavens will pass away with a great noise as objects being incinerated. This will likely be from an atomic reaction that will disintegrate all matter. So all the atoms and neutrons and protons and electrons will disintegrate and be consumed. God used the waters of his creation 
to destroy the earth with a flood. And he is going to use the powerful universe he created to bring about utter destruction of the entire universe. Outer space, if you've studied anything about it, you know what a dangerous place it is of violent eruptions and forces and power beyond what we can imagine. This is the future for our world. And because this is real, and it will happen just as God says it will happen, Peter then asks us the most important question. Verse 11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This, ladies, is a personal challenge to each of us. Everything we hold dear, all of our keepsakes, all of our treasures, all of our material possessions and goods that we have acquired, their destiny is to be burned up. So, how should we live? We are to live with eternity in our minds. We are not to become attached to those things that are destined to be burned up. How much of our time and our energy is spent with an out-of-balance desire to acquire this thing and that thing for our home or this clothing or this purse or this jewelry or these comforts. Our greater focus and concern for our use of time and energy must be living godly lives and holy lives that please the Lord. That certainly doesn't mean we cannot enjoy all the things, the wonderful things God has freely given us to enjoy. But the danger is when it becomes our focus and our priority. Does this truth make any difference to you? It should. We live on a dying planet that is destined to be destroyed by fire. It really ought to impact our values and our priorities and our ambitions. Peter's telling us we ought to live differently than the false teachers who reject Christ and the truth of future judgment. We have been given the knowledge of the truth as to where this world is headed. Everything in this life is temporary. It is our godly living that stores up treasures in heaven that will really matter for all of eternity. So how should we live in light of this future? First of all, we should live with expectancy, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. We are to look for the coming day of God. We are to have an attitude of excitement and expectation. So why are we told to look forward to an event that is, you know, at least a thousand plus years away? <clears throat> we are not to fear the day of God, the, a reference to the eternal state. All the corruption of the universe by mankind and by Satan is going to finally be judged and gone forever. There will be a new world where righteousness dwells, and this is why God will destroy the first sin-cursed universe as Paul spoke of in the book of Romans, <clears throat> uh, chapter 8, where he speaks of all creation groans from the impact of the corruption of sin. Secondly, but according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are not being told to look forward to destruction and judgment, but rather to what's going to emerge out of that destruction, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We read in Revelation 21, verse 1, that John sees a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. 
because the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. When God burns up the world, it doesn't mean that he's going to annihilate the world, but rather he will transform it, completely rearranging it, just like he did with the flood. The flames are going to purge and cleanse the world and the universe from the impact of sin. A new incredible world will emerge. This new world will be completely characterized by righteousness. No sin will be present in this new world. God will dwell with his people and the effects of sin are forever gone. No more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more loss, no sorrow, and no death. This is what the future will be for all who have trusted Christ for salvation. This is our true reality. This is our future. We are told to look forward to this world of righteousness that we are going to spend eternity in. So in light of this reality, knowing this sinful world awaits a fiery destruction, knowing the amazing future that we will have, we are to live righteously now. We are to be thinking about these things. This ought to motivate us to live pleasing to the Lord today. So what do you spend your free time thinking about? Is there too much thought about things that you long to acquire that are going to burn up? Are you too attached to the things that you have in this world? The Word of God has revealed the future to us. And in light of the fact of that future, what kind of person ought we to be? That was the question posed to us. What kind of person are you? How do you live your life? Is there too much value in your earthly possessions? Do you only think to train your children to be successful from a worldly viewpoint so that they uh, can uh, grow up to have job security and make a lot of money to buy a lot of things for themselves that will burn up? I found this study very convicting to my own heart. We ought to be grateful for God's measure of provision and his kindness that he's blessed us with. The danger is when we get out of balance and begin to think too much about the things in this world, about our creature comforts, or about our possessions, and that becomes a focus. Where is your focus? How many hours do you spend looking for things on the internet? Is your time balanced? Do you spend that much time in prayer that you do surfing on the internet? Is it balanced with your outreach to others? with your time in the Word, with reading godly books to edify your spiritual life. If you know Christ as your Savior, then ask Him to show you what's really in your heart. Be honest. Ask Him what you may need to change so that, if, so that you do live righteously in light of your future. And if you don't know Christ, but only know really about Him, then heed the warnings here in the Scripture. Run into his outstretched arms with a contrite heart and put your confidence and your trust in Jesus to be your Savior from sin. I close with verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. This requires hard work and discipline. Being diligent requires an effort on our part. To be found in him speaks of the time we stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema seat spoken of in 2 Corinthians 
Believers have already had our sins judged. Jesus took the wrath for our sin on the cross. However, every believer will stand before Jesus for the purpose of him having uh, evaluating our lives so that we are properly rewarded for the way that we live for him and served him after our salvation. We want to be found by him spotless in character and blameless in reputation. This is why we must keep fixing our hope on his return, knowing we will stand before him. That ought to motivate us to live for him, to strive to grow in the knowledge of him as we fight the good fight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. I pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts that obey. Help us to love your appearing and to live in light of your imminent return. And I pray that we would glorify you in the way we use our time and our energy and our money today. In Jesus' name, amen.